Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Ezra chapter 3 is where we're picking up tonight, moving through the histories. Uh, we have, in Ezra chapter 1, they get the order from Cyrus to go back and rebuild the city. It's been 70 years in Babylon. Um, and then verse 1, and, and, the, and then, I'm sorry, chapter 2 is the list of the people that say they're going to go back and join this trip to, to there. It's notable that Ezra himself as a priest doesn't come back with that first wave. So the records that are being kept in Ezra are the records that are initially back in Babylon. Um, chapter 3. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they've unpacked their stuff. They came back earlier in the year, and in the seventh month means they actually went to all those cities listed in chapter 2. And they settled in, they unpacked their stuff, they put their toothbrushes on the bathroom counters, and then they come back. There's no invitation mentioned. In fact, the way this is written and the way it's framed, it's almost a miracle that they either agreed to come back in the seventh month, but that's not recorded anywhere. It just says that in the seventh month, they come back to Jerusalem. The seventh month then becomes very important. There are three Jewish feasts in the seventh month. Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. I should have quizzed you guys on that. Do you know what the three, the three are? So that's three major feasts. It all gets celebrated as one thing. And we saw in the last two chapters, they're doing everything by the book. The fact that they all know that in the book, this is those three feasts, and they all come to Jerusalem on the seventh month, they wouldn't need an invitation. They just need to know how to read the lunar months that are going by. So they come back as one man, a really interesting phrase in the Old Testament. There is this sense of unity amongst the people that have come back from Babylon. They believe in what they're doing. They're connected in what they're doing. And there's an obedience that they have to do the business of God. And God's business for the Jewish people during this era is to build that altar and build that temple and resume worship as told because that worship will be the place where the Messiah will show up. So that's the narrative, the larger one. In verse 2, the Yeshua, we talked about him last week. Interesting that Joshua is there at the beginning, beginning of kingdom building. And Yeshua is here at the beginning of this age between where they don't have a kingdom, but they do have a temple. And then at the beginning of the final covenant with Jesus, you have that Jesus is the Greek name for Yeshua. So you've got this same named person leading the charge at each of these three major parts of history. Priest and governor are all leaders in the effort. Zerubbabel's the, the named governor. He also happens to be in the line of David, but we don't call him a king because he wasn't. The Persian Empire had the king. Zerubbabel simply a leader in the picture here. And that's a shift. Um, he arose and built the altar. They were riled up to do this. I want it, so it, to, a, a, I'm only going to give you a couple verses. The idea of a, a person of God 
arising is a biblical theme. And it's one that we've read over a few times. I apologize, but I saw, you see it again here. They arose and built, what does it mean to rot? Were they all sitting on the ground? And then they just decided to physically stand up and do it. But arose has a different connotation. Every time you see people up to no good or up to really good, they arise before they do it. Something stirs in their heart that seems to be a supernatural thing. Genesis 24, 61, Rebecca arose and her damsels and they rode upon the camels and they followed the man. Deuteronomy 34, 10, and there arose not a prophet since like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Joshua 8, 3, so Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And the children of Israel, Judges 2018, arose and went up to the house of God and they asked the counsel of God. Something stirs their spirit with each one of these, where they think this is the thing to do. 1 Samuel 18, 27, wherefore David arose and went. They're two different things. He and his men, and they slew the Philistines, 200 men. Every major moment in Israel's history, somebody arises. There's something that's stirred where God puts his spirit on somebody and that person, they just say, it's time to do something. And they arise and then an action always follows. It's interesting at this phase, they arise to build an altar of God, giving great significance to the altar, which you would think it's the temple, right? Isn't the temple the big deal? But the way this is worded, the temple's not, that's what their, Cyrus told them they could go build, but they don't start on the temple. The first thing they do is build an altar. This becomes very significant for the symbolism of Jewish tradition. So they build an altar of God. They're able to honor God as instructed. This comes before the temple, the altar does. So it indicates this emotional component, a force of will, a spiritual move to do this altar. What does the altar do? As a reminder, this is a wisdom. The altar atones for sin. Before anything can be done for the kingdom of God, the practice of this atonement image has to be put into place. Because anything you do for God, if it's not in God's spirit, it's not doing any good. It's just useless worship. And we'll see that when we get to the Samaritans here later in the chapter. The burnt offerings get fully consumed on the altar. And it, it's an image of sin. that before, When you come before God, that sin has to get fully burnt up. And all that's left of it is ashes. And those get scattered everywhere. As it is written, they're following God's law, God's plan. And God's plan is you build this altar first. Verse 3. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They start the practice of worshiping God without a temple. But they can't do this practice, according to God's prescription for the Israelites, they can't do the practice without the consecration of the altar. Everything comes from that. They have fear when they do it, and I think this is just a nice addition by the author. They actually do this despite their fear. Almost everything we're called to do from God, there's some level of anxiety or stress around it the first time you do it. Praying out loud worshiping at the top of your lungs, studying God's word on your own. There's always this sense in the flesh of this, I can't do this, I don't know if I can handle it. And they do it despite their fear. And even the pressure from the world, who are these people we'll get to in a bit. I want to talk about this bases. They put the altar on the bases. Uh, Tom was asking this afternoon, 
how did the why do the why don't the Jewish people give sacrifices? And the reason they don't give sacrifices is Ezra chapter three, and what's written in the law according to God's word. The sacrifices have to be given on this altar. If you do it up in Dan or in Asher or in Samaria or in Bethel, you're doing it on the wrong altar. And the reason for that is very specific. The altar has to go on an exact, precise spot. Entire planet Earth, a spot about as big as that couch where the, where the, where the altar goes. And it's a very precise spot. How do we know that? 2 Samuel 24, 16. When the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, remember the plague? And the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. The death stops. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, a platform, again, not much bigger than this little space on this side of the room. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Mount Moriah, the city where Jerusalem is, there's a raised area where the Temple Mount is. Right next to that, there's a little teeny raised area of stony outcropping where the threshing floor would be. It catches the most wind. It takes the chaff away from the wheat. Where judgment happens is often the threshing floor when it comes to imagery in the Bible. That's the spot where the altar goes. It goes on that spot. This high stony rise that's called the place. Now by Herod's temple, and, and some of the archaeologists argue about where this altar went, but they have a place. Imagine this ragtag group of people coming back, and they just see ruins everywhere, right? The Babylonians utter, utterly destroyed the walls, the temple, the Milo, everything. But they're digging through the rubble and moving rocks, and one of them says, I found it. I found the place where the altar goes. So that's the first thing they did is they started digging through the rubble of a destroyed world, and they found where the place goes where you can sacrifice for sin and have a covering for your sins. Before they do anything for the kingdom of God, they found that place. The high stony rise on Moriah later gets called Golgotha. It's the stony hill of the skull. And it's the same place that before you can do anything for the kingdom of God, you have to come to the place where the sacrifice was given. So the altar becomes very important. We have a singular foundation on the Mount of Jerusalem. The offering for sin is made there. They can meet with God there, and they can do it morning and evening. There's this idea of continual sacrifices that get boot-started or kick-started in this spot. And it's in the middle of a destroyed city. Right? And then the same thing's true with Christ. In the middle of a destroyed world, you find something beautiful, and that is the sacrifice of Christ. It's where all of your spiritual life begins. And it's where God divides the wheat from the chaff, Matthew 3.12. This is the spot. I, I hope we don't get our trip canceled to Israel, because it's a joy to be there and be in that spot and to see it. And then your first thought is, this isn't all that fancy. And, but then you realize, I, I don't think God ever has gone with fancy. He's usually gone with the simple things of this world. Preparations. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written. Notice they've said that twice now. They've offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering of the Lord. 
And from the first day to the seventh month, they gave, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundations of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They make a point of it. The altar was first. All by the book, if you want to know the book, Numbers 29 gives you the day-by-day practices that go with this. Everything in line with God's directions. Atonement, regular services, feasts, fellowship, and then a commentary on the building. And I think it's interesting this time, as they're coming out of Babylon, one thing the Jews have learned, they don't need a building to worship the Lord. What they need is a sacrifice. And I think as Christians we say that too. The church isn't the building, the church is the people. And we don't need a building to worship the Lord, but we do need the consecration of God's sacrifice for us to come before him. So the priests don't need a temple. They're going to get one, but they don't need a temple. They need the altar. Verse 7. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So it's interesting. They hire workers to work on the house of God. And the workers from Tyre and Sidon would be the Philistines that were their enemies before. They're working with Gentiles. And this is interesting because when Jesus shows up in the first century, they have a real issue with Gentiles. There's a racism that develops amongst the Jews between now and then, but they don't seem to have any problem at all building this with cedar. Cedars of Lebanon are important because it's like silver from Greece, silks from China, chocolate from Switzerland, you know, hockey players from Minnesota, trucks from Detroit. When you say cedars from Lebanon, you mean the best of the best. This is high-quality lumber. They've been known for it. And it's the same stuff that Solomon used back in 1 Kings 5. They're trying to replicate the temple as best they can when it comes to materials. 70 years in Babylon, now they're coming back, and they mean business. Everything by the book, nothing off kilter. They're starting off like they should. And I think with each era of history, God has the best-case scenario at the beginning. And even in the church age, the best case scenario is the book of Acts. And everything from there, humans kind of screw it up as time goes on. Best case scenario with the judges was Joshua. Best case, or Moses and Joshua. Best case scenario for kings was David and then Solomon. Best case scenario for the church age, Jesus handing it off to Peter. And we see this kind of happens at each phase. And at this phase, the best case scenario, the people of God doing everything by the book. And they start out on the right foot. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. So we're moving on. Now they're going to start re- 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 restoring the temple itself. Even before construction, and I think this is interesting, in verse 8, they come to the house of God at Jerusalem, yet they haven't built a temple yet. Do you catch that phrasing? Which means the house of God here is not a physical place. It's the place where the sacrifice happens. So if the house of God's not a physical place, and Jesus says, I'm the sacrifice or the atonement from sins, that's not a physical thing when we get to the next age of church history. So God takes all of this spiritual imagery and he moves it into an understanding or a concept. So in this case, they, they gather at the house of God at Jerusalem even before there is a temple of God at Jerusalem. And so that even that idea of the gathering of people being the house. You also have the imagery of family. Christ says that we're grafted into the family of God. So if that's true, like you look at being in a family, you also look at being in the same household. 
or gathering place. And this is how they perceived it even at this point in Jewish history. So again, this is something you can fly through this stuff and it's really kind of quick, sloppy history if you're just reading really fast. But almost every line here, you start to see shifts in Jewish culture. When they come out of Babylon, they are a different people than the ones that got hauled off to Babylon. And this concern for doing it the right way doesn't seem to leave. In fact, it kind of errors on the other side as it grows into like pharisaicalism. But this desire to follow God's will never leaves the Jewish people. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, Yeshua, the son of Josedek, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who'd come out of captivity of Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the Lord. That's David's age change in when the priests started service. Then Yeshua, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah arose as one. There's that, that as one man, that same phrase, as one. There's just a movement going on to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. So they set up a leadership structure. They have oversight. They have accountability. The emphatic idea of them rising together Um, very uniform, one accord, one plan. When God's people move in the Bible, you see a deliberation, an organization, and a determination amongst them. They're deliberate in what they're doing because they're following God's word. They're organized and they set up leadership structures so there's accountability and there's a, a, a clear authority structure. People aren't confused about where they stand. And then there's a determination. There's this spirit of oneness amongst God's people. You put those three things together, every time we see that happen in the Bible, we see good things happen for the kingdom of God. So again, Ezra sets that tone with this. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, remember he's the great singer of David's era, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David king of Israel. So that praise we saw David add to the Levitical and Numbers worship system, he added these musicians. What they're saying in verse 10 is when they came back from Babylon, they felt that that was a God-inspired addition to Numbers and Leviticus. So this is how books of the Bible have been added, right? They see something happen. They see God anoint it and bless it. Remember the Shekinah glory showed up with Solomon, which would confirm the changes that David made. If David made the wrong changes, like when they tried to move the ark and somebody died doing it, remember they touched the ark and God killed them, God's saying, I don't want these changes to my law. So they see that and they look at God's reinforcement or his redirection on different things. And with David, they saw reinforcement. So that means the Asaph singers, the 24 rounds of singers and priests that would do song, they're a blessing to the temple and God's anointed that with his glory. Verse 11, and they sang responsively, praising the Lord and giving thanks to the Lord. Quote, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. That's a a quotation from Psalm 136. Could be a couple other Psalms. But 136 is set up as a responsively structured Psalm. And the way that works is you have two choirs. And one choir sings one line and then the other choir sings the other line. When we sing responsively, we think of the people on the stage singing one thing and then the audience sings another, only the audience doesn't have a hymnal in their hands. 
So you would have trained singers doing both of these call and responses and or you'd have a line get sung and then the audience would sing the same line back over and over and over again. We don't know which of those it is, um, but you just get this sense of joy. Here's the other thing. Go back to verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple, this is the ancient world's version of turning on the boombox because it's easier to work when you got music going. And what 10 and 11 tell us is that while they're doing massive stone moving, they're cranking up the tunes. And they got the trumpets going and the song. And then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This is a moment of joy for God's people. They're just singing. You can imagine the workers kind of singing along as they go. And they don't remember back in the days of Egypt when they were building pyramids. Like, that's, like, not in their memory. That was a long time ago. But this is a different kind of construction crew. And this would be very disturbing for the people that have been living in the land for a long time. Who are these people and why are they whistling while they work? And so you see that there's a speaking of the cornerstone and it getting laid. The foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's in the singular. It's likely the cornerstone or the ceremony around the laying of the first block. And these blocks, by the way, were massive limestone blocks. So it would be a major thing. It's written as if their, their thankfulness was that the foundation was there. It's interesting when the foundation stone shows up and it's brought to Jerusalem, it'd come up from the mines, it would come up the hill, and you got songs being sung, there's feasts being eaten, and they lay the stone and everybody's thankful that the stone has been laid. The contrast of this stone laying to the stone laying of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone becomes really tragic. This is how the Jewish people should have reacted when Jesus came up the hill as the cornerstone of the new covenant. There should have been singing and praise. In fact, it's so important in God's plan that they're singing and praise that the crowds just come out and start singing Jesus' praise. They start laying down palm branches and doing this. And the people try to stop it from happening. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If the people weren't praising me, even the stones would cry out and do it. This is what happens when a cornerstone gets laid. This is how that's going to work. Matthew 21, 42, the stone which the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118 when he says that. Maybe that's part of what they were singing when they did this. Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16 and says, therefore it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. This is the joy. God's moving to help people be in his kingdom again. And the reflection of this to Jesus Christ is that with this, they continue to build the house of God. With Jesus Christ, they kill and reject the cornerstone. And for three days, he's dead and gone. But when he rises again, the people that sought after him, the joy that comes, the Holy Spirit that is at Pentecost shed upon the kingdom of God, and the house of God that gets built in the church is way more joyful than this moment. And you see what the church has done worldwide over 2,000 years. And I'm not talking about bad people that do bad things. I'm talking about the influence of Holy Spirit-inspired godly people and remnants all over the earth doing great and wonderful things. And when God's house moves, it's done with unity and worship and praise. 
and, and this is even before they try to build the house of God, the cornerstone gets laid. And you think of the same thing with the church. Jesus comes first, which is our sacrifice, and he lays the cornerstone, which the builders rejected, which becomes the cornerstone, before the house of the church gets built. And so you see this great reflection in Ezra. And again, I'm not claiming Ezra even saw this as prophecy, right? He's just writing it. It's the fact that later on we see the Gospels that so much of this is mirrored and you realize what God was doing here was fairly specific and that God had given them the way to do this thousands of years before this even happens. God planned all of this. He planned the whole thing to be symmetrical. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted for joy. Verse 12 is really interesting. The crowd gets divided. And the old fogies don't get the fact that it's changing and it's different. And again, 70 years in Babylon, the claim here is there's a couple people over 70. First of all, how they made the trip across the desert is, is these guys were tough, right? This is a whole different kind of 70 plus people. But remembering the joy of the temple, and re remember there were some revivals before they went off to Babylon. And to come back and see the whole thing just devastated, the work they have in front of them, and then they lay the cornerstone and they can see the design for the foundation. And what they're realizing here is the second temple is significantly smaller than Solomon's temple. And they're going, oh, this is not going to be as impressive. Now Herod expands it, and when Herod does his expansion, the temple gets big, huge, and glorious and fancy again. But this was a modest house of God that they were setting up. And they don't need a big house, but they're missing some things. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. There's no record of it. There's no record of a Shekinah glory coming over this spot. When Solomon said his prayer, like the glory of God showed up and everybody could see God was confirming it. In this case, God's invisible. Nobody can see God's presence when they do. They're doing it all on faith. So they weep and they're like, this just isn't, this isn't what we hoped for. We came all the way across the desert out of Babylon because we wanted to see the glory of God. Come. And this is modest. Yeah, you're using the cedars of Lebanon, but there is a weeping that goes on here. And maybe that weeping, you know, you'd say, well, maybe they were weeping for joy, but the, it was as the temple was laid before their eyes, yet many, in other words, in a contrasting language, many shouted aloud for joy. And hey, we're going to, we're starting. And this is the younger people. They don't remember what the old one looked like. So that the people could not discern the noise from the shout of joy from those weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far off. That's an ominous last line. People heard the noise. God's people get together. We do make noise now and then. And it's a joyful noise usually, but in this case it had a mixed result. And when Jesus comes and he's laid as a cornerstone, it's the same situation. You got a lot of the Pharisees and the established people that really were, didn't, they rejected Jesus and they didn't want him. You had other people that followed him that they shouted for joy. And the mix of those two things, they can hear the crying and the joyful people start yelling louder to kind of cover up the crying people. What was left before them? One of the questions probably when they lay the cornerstone is, is God even with us? You know, you got all these people around that don't want us to do this. We're going to have tons of problems. There's a mixed result here. And we need to remember that one of the prophets that's with Israel right now is a prophet named Haggai. And he sidles up to Zerubbabel 
and he gives him a prophecy. And it's interesting in Haggai, you can, you can read this prophecy and that he's being told not to worry about it. Don't be upset about the crying people here. Build this temple. Do what God's asked you to do. So Haggai um, says, speak now to Zerubbabel and Yeshua, Joshua. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? The old people, right? And how do you see it now? Humble. Is it not your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Is, is this meant to be for your eyes or is this meant to be for your heart? And Haggai says, yet now be strong for I am with you. So they don't have a visible Shekinah glory, but they do have a prophet of God, God's word, confirming to them that God is with you in this, even though you're not seeing the same things your forefathers saw. Says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I've covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, I told you to build the temple when you came out of Egypt, and that word still stands. So you're following through on what you were told. This isn't different from today. We don't get to see Jesus incarnate, but the commands are clear as to what we're supposed to do. So we hold to them in faithfulness, not because we've seen things, but because God made a promise and he keeps his word. So my spirit remains among you, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the city and the land, I will shake all all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill with glory this house, says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai comes up with this promise while they're laying the foundation stone and he's saying, what you're about to build is where I'm going to show up and I will fill this house with glory myself. You don't see a Shekinah glory, but they're going to see Jesus brought to this temple. The foundation stone that they're laying, the stairs that they're putting in place, the courtyard that they're fixing up, the Messiah is going to walk on this courtyard. He will walk those stairs. He will come up to this altar. He will be the cornerstone in this place. So there's a promise of Messiah that is in Zerubbabel's ear while they're laying this cornerstone. I just think that's amazing. If we come to the task of building and we have no preconception of what God will do, we're free to let God do his work. And just the idea of the transition of the covenant with this moment is they have to do things that we have to do. It starts to get more familiar. You don't get to see the Shekinah glory. You have to trust my word and my promise. If you do what I've told you to do with just my word, you're going to see the promises fulfilled. And this looks a lot more like our covenant with Jesus. I'm going to go away for a while, but you're told to do business, Luke chapter 19, and while I'm away... You should be doing what I've commanded you to do. And when I return, you will see me in my full glory. It's the same thing that Jesus had. Is the same prophecy that they got about Messiah when they were building this temple. It's an image of what we have. Again, just this reflective nature of the Old Testament. The worship and praise, before we move on to the next chapter. The worship and praise, remember, drew the attention of the surly residents that are all around them, right? And we'll talk about them here in chapter 4. But they got the attention of the people around them. So in verse 1, when it says now, chapter 4, verse 1, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. The enemies of God, if the people of God don't do anything and we don't make any noise and we don't praise the Lord, nobody knows we exist. It's because they were praising and worshiping the Lord, even some of them in their sorrow, 
right? It's the noise that they made that got the attention of the enemies. And the noise wasn't, it, clearly the Israelites weren't out antagonizing these people. But they're called adversaries in 4 verse 1. They're adversaries. Why are they adversaries? Because as we'll see, they don't like the fact that God's people are building a temple. It bothers them. Who are you to worship and make noise? Who are you to build a house to your God? Who are you to do any of these things? So they're not building in a vacuum, and I think we should understand that. Um, to the north of them are a group of people called Samaritans. To the west of them are a group of people called the Philistines. The people that are going to be in the complaint list in the letter are a number of groups of people that have been historic enemies of Israel. They're not happy. They still remember 70 years ago the problem that Israel was. So the Samaritans, uh, we should know, um, come from the Assyrian conquest of the Northern Empire. They took the Jews that were there and scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire. Assyrians took people from all different places and transplanted them in. Their strategy of empire was move people out of their natural habitat and let their cultures dissolve and the Assyrian culture rises. So the Samaritans were this weird combination of Yahweh worshipers, because you come into the new land, you, you try to worship the God of that land so you don't get them angry. But they did Yahweh worship without any regard for the Torah. They made up their own stuff. They had their own robe designs. They came up with their whole system of Yahweh worship. So it's been a while since the Samaritans have been transplanted. They've been there for 200 years. By comparison, the United States has been on this continent about 200 years, a little more. So they're established as Samaritans. This is their home. This is where they're at. They're up in the area of Ephraim, just north of Jerusalem. So they hear this noise, which means they were making some loud worship noise because they hear it miles away. And they came to Zerubbabel, the, the civic leader of the group, and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. And we've sacrificed him to him since the days of Eshardan, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. So it's a they make an offer to come help with the project. But why in verse 1 are they called adversaries? All right? So we get an image of some, you're going to be about the business of building God's people and building the kingdom of God. You may run into some people who say they worship God, but they don't. And in disregarding God's law, they're not worshiping the God of the Israelites because they don't care what that God said for them to do. They're making up their own religion, but they're using words like Yahweh. And so it says, let us build with you. A huge question here is, why would they say no? Extra help or not, why would they say no to these people? Here's another thought. Um, they've already recruited the Philistines from Tyre and Sidon to help bring lumber up. So they've already included Gentiles. They got the Nethanim traveling with them out of Babylon, they've already got Gentiles helping with the building project. So what's the problem with these nice people that say, we want to help you? Why are they saying no to people that say, we're here to help? And the, the, there's a few thoughts on this, and I'm just going to share them all with you. You can do what you want with them. One thought is, is that they used discernment, and they started to think for just two seconds. These people that want to help us have been here for 70 years when this place was rubble. Why didn't they fix it over 70 years if it was important to them? Here's another thought. Why do they want to join now? Why is this suddenly something they want to help with? And the thinking there is when they came back, remember in chapter 1, when they came back from Babylon, they were loaded with gold and silver and lots of nice shiny things. 
And so when you look at this camp, you're going to see a big tent where those treasures are being held. And so the other thought is they all went out to these cities and they were interacting with the world. And when they all came back to Jerusalem, they could see that there was a mission going on here. Um, it says they sacrificed. Here's another discerning thing. We have sacrificed to him since the days of Ashardon, king of Assyria. But they know that when they were brought in as Samaritans, they didn't come to Jerusalem to do worshiping. So when they say they sacrificed, they're saying that they did it their own way. They, it was self-righteous sacrificing. They determined they were righteous in doing this. So it was a temple without priests or priests without the proper temple. They should not have been sacrificing without God's temple built. So if they've been sacrificing this whole time, that's 70 years of doing it the wrong way. So easy to discern. You say you're doing it our way, but you're not doing it. They've done everything in chapter 3 according to God's word. Now, here's a bunch of people that by the words of their own mouth are saying they completely ignored God's word. Discernment is one reason not to do it. Here's the second reason. There are far more Samaritans. We saw the number counts in chapter 2. There are far more Samaritans than there are Jews. So if you let these people into the camp and they help build the temple, they're going to have a claim on that temple when it's built. We help build this. It's ours. And they're going to take it and they got way more numbers to do it. So part of this is that I think an argument is they're a lot smaller group of people and you let in that bigger, more powerful group, they're just going to take over. And so one way to stop that from happening is to say, no, 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 we got this thing on our own. You, nobody wants this Jerusalem. You've all destroyed it and left it destroyed. We're just going to do our own little thing here. Don't bother us, please. So they say, they say no to them um, and walk them off. So but Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's house said, you may do nothing with us to build the house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. You can do nothing to help. We want no business with you. So note that the response is coming from a full council. Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers, that unity of thinking has persisted in discernment and or politics and number counts or however you want to frame why they're saying no. Um, another, by the way, a third possibility on why they say no is they simply prayed about it and they asked the Lord, should we bring these people on board? And the Lord said, don't do it. So one of my questions, and I wasn't able to find this, is as we go through Haggai and Jeremiah and some of those prophets, I'm kind of looking for, did God tell them through the recorded prophets not to make this arrangement with these folks? And, I, and so that's a question, and some of you might even know that off the top of your head. Um, I did a lot of reading, and I couldn't find something that lent itself to that. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means I'm ignorant. So you can do nothing with us is a clear no. If you're going to say no to people, don't give a bunch of excuses and reasons. Nope, you can do nothing with us. That leaves no room for dialogue or discussion. It's just a clean no. This is a good trick if you got to break up with somebody. Just, we're going to break up. Just pull the Band-Aid off. And just be done with it and, and make the breakup. Um, married people, that's not for you. Um, <laughs> you may do nothing with us is, well, we don't want you helping to build the house. Well, can we help build the roads? Can we do this? Can we do, like, they're going to just keep coming back with any opening they can find to get involved in this project. But a clear no, we know that the no has nothing to do with them being Gentiles. It does have to do with verse one, the fact that they're adversaries of what's going on.
So it could be that just as they went back to their houses for seven months, they learned these people hate them. They want nothing to do with it. They learn the culture. So it's a step of faith here to reject apparent help with no apparent or recorded motives. But they do use the phrase in verse 3 to build a house for our God. They make a separation. The God we're worshiping is not the God you're worshiping. You're using the word Yahweh, but that's not the Yahweh we serve. And again, we see a lot of that in the church today. Christians today have to use discernment. There's a number of churches that use the name Jesus. But then you look at what they're doing, and it has nothing to do with Jesus' words and the word of God and the commands of God. If you have a church doing things that are not clearly in the commands of God, they're not worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping themselves, and they're using the Lord's name in vain to no, to no fruit or no purpose, which is one of the, by the way, one of the Ten Commandments. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't mess with this. So they, they make a separation with the phrase, our God, um, and they back them off. Enough on that. Verse 4. Then the people of the land, <laughs> by the way, you know that they were adversaries because of how they react to a no. You know, if they were God's people and they were told no, they'd be like, okay, cool, if you need anything, call. You know, text me when you need some help on something. I'm there for you. But that's not how they react. They get the word no, and you can often test spirits with a no or I'll pray about that because they want the yes right now. And so here's how they react, and let's pull this apart. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We're going to go through multiple rulers where these people just become harassment to what God's work is. Every time God's people, a remnant of them, try to do a work, there will be people around and outside of them trying to stop the work. And you just see it throughout history. So they made a great call here. They rejected the help of these people, um, wanting a share in what they're doing, and the response is gossip, harassment, and lawsuits. Right? All God's people do have to do is say no, and you're going to get in plenty of trouble. If you want conflict, just follow the Lord, praise and worship, and the conflict will find its way to your doorstep. And this is why God says it's not your job to judge, it's your job to praise the Lord. And to have parties, and have feasts, and have celebrations, and celebrate when the cornerstone gets laid. That's all we need to do to get these people on our case. So that if they can't take it, they want to stop it. So let's look at the enemy's attributes here. They tried to. I want to point that word out in verse 4. They tried to, which means they didn't do it. They made an effort to discourage God's people, but they weren't able. When they, God's people are together with one unified vision, when they rise as one man, there's no stopping God's will. The gates of hell cannot prevent against God's or cannot prevail against God's people when they're united in Christ. There's no stopping God's discouragement just isn't going to work on God's people. The word discouragement in the Hebrew means to weaken the hands. I know Steph's got wrist problems right now and she knows what it feels like to have your muscle mass disappear in your wrist. It's very painful. Sharon has a broken thumb. You know, it's the word discouragement is literally translated to weaken the hands or to make believers weak, to take away their vigor and their grip on life. And that's what discouragement does. It's you start asking questions like, why am I working so hard for the kingdom of God? Why is this all worth it? There's a spiritual mental attack that to discourage someone is to make it so they're not quite as vigorous in serving the Lord anymore. It's too much work. It's too hard. 
The second thing they do is to trouble in the building. In the Hebrew, it means the, the word there to trouble someone is to cause terror or to threaten someone or a palatable fear of feebling someone. So discourage someone to weaken their hands is a step, a step below the next part. The discouragement doesn't work, but they do trouble them in the building. Troubling in the building has the connotation of they actually frustrated the efforts. They set some of those timbers from Lebanon on fire. They messed up, they put cracks in the rocks before they could ship them. They did everything they could do to um, enfeeble the process of building something. And, and again, spiritually speaking, this puts a thought in your head of like, I don't want to do things to upset this person because they're just going to make my work harder if I do. Or worse, they're going to actually interfere and sabotage and undermine the work I'm trying to do. So how do you keep these people away when you're trying to build something for God and they're trying to frustrate the work? Literally here, they then hire counselors. They get the government and the lawyers to try to use authority from the government perspective, courtrooms, to stop the work of God, to frustrate the efforts. And again, on this one, it, they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all of the days. This is this ongoing thing. And for believers spiritually, this puts thoughts in our heads like, man, I don't know if I want to do that because I might get sued. I might get in trouble. The government's telling me I have to do this. And then you got these people hiring. It's like they create legal systems to sue people. And this stage is a very dangerous stage because biblically the next stage after this is to kill believers and God's people. If you can dehumanize them enough to say, I'm going to take a godly person and as soon as they won't bake a cake for somebody, I'm going to destroy their life and wreck their business, it's not a big step to say, I'm just going to kill this person. You've already dehumanized them. So this idea of hiring counselors and using the jail or the threat of jail to frustrate the kingdom, it's actually going to stop the building of God's house. This will successfully put a 15-year pause in the efforts to build God's house. What's interesting is in the book of Acts, when the Jesus, the cornerstone, gets laid, all of these tactics get used against the disciples in the book of Acts. You can look at it as a total mirror. Only with the building of the church, none of these things work. They literally throw disciples in jail and they start singing more songs. That's their response to jail cells. Or, you know, angels show up and hang out with them and unlock the jail cell for them and they just walk out. So you see all these efforts getting used and, and they don't stop the church, they do get in the way of building this temple. And so you see this idea, and it says all of the days. There's a, a, an idea in verse 5 that they just don't stop. And one starts to think, where do you get the energy to attack God's people? Why do you care? How do you stay, what do you stay up all night trying to think of new lawsuits? Like, what is with you? And I think sometimes it's funny because here at the church we'll talk about politics and current events when we're eating lunch or hanging out afterwards. And a lot of times it's, frankly, it's the guys. And they just got this frustration. It was like, where does this persistence come from? Just this attack against the church all the time. And there is like this kind of idea of like, my goodness, this just feels like the spirit of our age. Um, there's another spirit in our age too. And I think this is the hopeful one. There's a spirit of joy amongst the people of God. When you know that about God, you know that he shows up under these circumstances, that we don't have to do this on our own or beat these people on our own. Then you start thinking, wow, if they're staying all up all night to come up with a lawsuit, I got a good night's sleep and I don't even need to worry about this. You want to throw me in jail? I start a prison ministry. 
You know, it's just, if, if you want to do, if you want to actually kill me, I get to go to heaven. There's nothing they can do to God's people that actually matters when Jesus shows up on the scene. So these successful tactics that Satan's been using throughout human history become useless under the covenant of Jesus Christ. But that's pretty good news, right? We can beat this world with what Jesus has given us. James 3.16 For where the envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there too. James gives the summary of this resistance. It's a demonic resistance to God's people. And it shows up at every major instance of God's people rising up and doing a new work. Frankly, I think it's zoning codes. That's what we're running into. With, like, zoning codes are really anti-church. I don't know if you've looked at this, but there's entire cities that have no place for churches in their zoning codes. Where are you supposed to build a church? Doesn't matter to us. So that's why we're looking at doing, like, a church business retail store thing. Sell a couple coffee cups in the front window and call yourself a store. Anyways, even until, I shouldn't say that on the, people are going to say that, you know, now I'm going to get sued. <laughs> you plotted this six years ago. I, we got it in your teaching. Even until, an indication with Nehemiah to this resist, resistance does successfully stop and slow down the work. Uh, in the reign of Ahasuerus, uh, I'm going to just say Xerxes. That's another name for Xerxes. Um, Xerxes is like the Persian word for king or ruler. Um, so Ahasuerus might have been his actual name. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. As Ahasuerus is the peak of the Persian Empire. When you look, when you're doing elementary school and you study the Persian Empire, you study Xerxes and Anaxerxes. Those two rulers in a row are kind of the golden age. At the height of the empire, they control 127 provinces of land from India all the way to African Ethiopia. And so in Esther 1.1, they describe the golden age of this era. And so in the middle of that golden age, these people are continuing to write lawsuits and letters and to frustrate. Also, the records... Um, uh, the records show, and we know this from the story of Esther, we'll get there soon, that they were actually killing Jewish people at this point in the empire. So where Cyrus was very kind to the Jews and gave them permission and let them go peacefully, by the time we get to Esther, we see the story of how she and Mordecai rise to be top counsels, but they started out almost being at the threat of death. And so God actually miraculously intervenes and you get a sense in context from Ezra and Nehemiah, the entire story of Esther, which makes for great movies, was so that they could build this house of God back in Jerusalem without being interrupted. And God miraculously intervenes with Esther to help protect the Jewish people, not just back in Babylon, but the assaults and the persecution they're experiencing here in Israel. With the rise of Artaxerxes, we see no such protection. The temporary respite that Esther offered them goes away in verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, also Bishlam, Merirathath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script, translated into the Aramaic language. Ezekiel 4.9 and, and 6.18 shows just that this this is a combination of people that are writing. Um, I'm sorry, Ezra 4.9 to 6.18 is all in Aramaic in the actual original scripts. 
So we left the Hebrew. We've moved into Aramaic for a couple chapters. Verse 8. Uh, Rehum, which means Lord of Judgment. It's a Babylonian name in the Aramaic. The commander of Shimshai, the, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem, King Artaxerxes, in this fashion. In the days, very short term, Artaxerxes is, you notice the word Xerxes is in there. Artaxerxes is like imposter prince or, or someone who has stepped in. Uh, if you look at Persian records, they don't even record that he had a reign. He kind of unjustly took over the kingship, lasted a few months, and then he got popped out. So the, the fact that it says during the reign of the last king, but in verse 7 it says in the days of, is actually historically accurate. He never really establishes his reign over the Persian Empire. And they have lots of conflicts. But this little short window is one that the enemies of God's people take advantage of. You got an imposter leader, they're kind of unethical to start with, and they throw this threat of empire in front of them, and bad leaders respond to things like this. So the enemy takes advantage of this. Here the leaders and the complainers in verse 7 are named, which is evidence that their attack gets recorded. God remembers these things. It's official, it's written, and it's on an impressive legal document. So what we're about to read is in a legal form that would be appropriate within the Persian Empire. Uh, we get that through a couple little phrases I'll point out. Also, why are they doing this? What does it matter if they build a building on the top of Mount Moriah? Like you, you constantly start thinking back, like what's the problem with this? Why persecute these nice song-singing people? The same spirit here of any government that tries to shut down churches. You have this spirit of God's people trying to worship and, and governmental efforts and legal efforts to try to stop them. Number of earmarks that are typical of the enemy's attack we're going to see through here. Uh, verse 9, from Rahim the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dinanites, or again, this is formal language, they list the groups of people they claim to represent. Afar, Scythakites, the Tarpites, the people of Persia, and Erech, and Babylon, and Shushan, the Dehavites, um, the Elamites, that's a, again an ancient enemy of Israel, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble on snapper took captive and settled the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. And so forth is like a, again, one of those phrases that indicates they're doing it in proper Persian form. It means etc. etc. What I get, what's striking for me about this is they show a collection of nations and name a few of them. And all of these nations have rightful claims surrounding Judah and Jerusalem. So they're naming everybody that's around them. So once again, you've got Israel surrounded by their enemies. It seems to be a common theme with Israel. This just keeps coming up. A vague claim. So tactic number one of the enemy. Make claims that cannot be substantiated. And so they use a term, and so forth, etc., etc., implying that everybody's with them, that they're legitimate representatives of all these people in all these cities, Yet we don't, at least in the biblical record, we don't have any evidence that they're actually legitimate representatives of anybody. They just don't like the people of God building a building. So they write this letter. They claim vaguely that they're the ones that are making a claim together. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that they sent. They sent him, the king, or Artaxerxes. 
um, to Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Again, and so forth, you get this vague, unclear thing. Uh, beyond the river there is not the Jordan River. It could be, because Samaritans were on the other side of the Jordan. But when you're writing to Persia, that river they're talking about is probably the Euphrates River. So again, a big swath of land they're talking about. Verse 12, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. So we get another tactic. They actually are using name calling and they're calling this city evil, even though the city isn't built yet. And they're making unsubstantiated claims about rebellion against the kingdom and around the throne. So it's worded like they're setting up for a standoff, like they're building the walls and repairing the foundations, when what we know they've done so far is they've laid a cornerstone for a house of God. But they make it sound like Jerusalem's getting ready to rebel against your empire. Um, they use the term Jews, which by this time, this group of people that was the Israelites, the children of God, they're now called Jews based on the tribe of Judah. And that, that becomes the prevalent name up until this day we call this group of people the Jews. Time has passed. The temple's done. It looks like they're upset with this next phase. Verse 13, now let it be known to the king, if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom. All three of those are three different ways you paid the Persian Empire. It, and the king's treasury will be diminished. In other words, now in verse 13, they go to outright lying about them. They're saying what the Jews will do with absolutely no evidence, like they're mind readers. Here's what those nasty Christians really think. Here's what they're really trying to do. And this idea of presuming to mind read is a, a tactic the enemy uses. And the key reason they're also appealing to what any ruler of Persia would worry about, and that is their pocketbook. You sent these native people back so they could provide a tax base, chapter one, but what they're really going to do is not pay you a dime. And then look at what they do next. Verse 14, now because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. We're doing you a favor. We're the good guys. We're just warning you about trouble so that these people don't hurt everybody else by doing things their own way. And again, the spirit of the enemy is everybody has to do everything the same way. If you do anything different, you're a danger. We receive support. The phrase there in the Aramaic is, we are salted with the salt of the palace. And, and the, the connotation there is we get life from the palace, we get preservation from the palace, protection from the palace. We are the flavor of Persia. No, they're not. They're Assyrian Samaritans. They worship their own version of Yahweh. They are not Persian in any way, shape, or form. So to present themselves as allies and partners is the same thing they did to the Jews when they said, can we help you build your temple? They're just looking around for friends and buddies. And they're, they're presenting themselves falsely, lying about their motives, painting themselves as concerned citizens, very good people. And in doing this, then they also throw in this little thing. It's not proper. It wouldn't be right for us to see the king be dishonored. 
which is also first they go after his pocketbook, now they go after his pride. They're playing the tools of a weak leader. If you can turn these levers, you can move weak leaders to do whatever you want, which is where they support and elevate weak leaders. It speaks to his pride, his reputation. If you let the Jews do this, you're going to look bad. And Artaxerxes is responsive. Verse 15, that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of the records that you and know that this city is a rebellious city. Now it's just stated as fact, right? Loyal citizens coming, doing Cyrus's command are now rebels. Harmful to kings and promises that they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. They're going to take over everything if you let them have anything. So no mention here, by the way, of the record that Cyrus gave and the funding he gave to do, they're actually following Cyrus's command. And so... They're being selective with their history. They're being directive with it. And when they send them to the records of their fathers, this is interesting. The records of your fathers for the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire, they were actually descendants of the Babylonians. They'd have all the Babylonian records. They're also, the Babylonians were descendants of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were descendants of the Hittites. There's no record that the, we have those records being moved around between those four empires. It's possible when he goes to the library, he can find records of the Hittites and the wars that the Hittites had with the Israelites. He's certainly going to find the Assyrian and Babylonian records. So those libraries were all still intact. Same language, same histories between those empires, same set of gods with slightly different names. There are actually some records that you're going to find, selective history. You're going to find that once in a while, uh, Israel did do this. This is true at some level. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachim, and Zedekiah all revolted against the empire that was over them at the time and didn't refuse to pay taxes. One thing about these three kings, these were three kings that were not painted with a good picture in the scriptures. They were disobedient to God. And we know from the book of Jeremiah, they directly had a prophet telling them not to do that. So that disobedience of these three kings now gets used by the enemy to create a selective history. Notice this when you meet somebody who doesn't want to follow the Lord. They will selectively look back through church history and find the worst case scenarios of disobedient Christians doing things that Jesus never told them to do. And they'll point at the Spanish Inquisition, the Second and Third Crusades, and they'll say, look at how evil Christianity is. And they selectively remember history the way they want to remember history. This is one of the tools of the enemy. And then the claim you'll have no dominion beyond the, the, your, the river is a bit of an exaggeration. David and Solomon never controlled that territory, ever. There's no history of that. So by combining partial truths with big sweeping statements, they rewrite history. And this is one of the tools of the enemy. Don't remember the truth of history. Remember what we want you to remember from history. They do not encourage Artaxerxes to look up the Cyrus order to go build the temple. That's pretty recent history. They could have had a written record of that. They could have encouraged them to go look at that record because that would show that these, is, that these Jews are being obedient to the command of a Persian king. 
So this little tiny spot, this little sliver of land, the size of New Jersey, now threatens all of the Persian Empire, all 127 provinces. This little sliver of land will make you, you look like a fool. Nonsense. They could have actually rebelled, and we're talking about one city in an empire that covers three continents. This is not a threat to Artaxerxes, but the way they frame this, and again, I'm just going to summarize it. These are the tools of the accuser. And in the Bible, we know the accuser is Satan. This is a spiritual adversary, verse 1. These are adversaries of the people of God, and they use the tools of the enemies of the God. 1, verses 9 and 10, false representation. 2, vagueness, verses 10 and 11. Mind reading good people's intentions instead of actually trying to talk to them, verse 12. Lying, verse 13. False positioning of concern for law and order, verse 14, in the name of helpfulness and safety. Rewriting history with false events framing them, verse 15. Predicting and exaggerating a horrible outcome as a conclusion, verse 16. If we don't get our way, it's going to destroy everything. This is a master course in evil. This is how it operates. Nehemiah will give us the same lesson. This is what bad people do to stop good people. And we see no record of them checking out their story, due diligence. They're just sending these things off to the emperor because the Jews said, no, you can't be a part of what we're doing. And that created all of these results for generations. And the enemies of God's people are still attacking Israel today, and they still rewrite history and frame Israel the way they paint bad intentions on Israel. They're still doing it today. It has never changed. And even the Romans did this with the Jews. So it didn't, it, it's just been a consistent history with Jewish people. It's reacting with one side of the story instead of both sides of the story. They don't go back and check this out or try to confirm it. The emperor foolishly does not go to the Jews to get their side of the story. They just accept the concerned narrative of the Samaritans. This is part of why the, the people of Israel hate the Samaritans, by the way. We have to know this history. This is only a few hundred years before we get to Jesus where the Samaritans the worst possible group of people. It's because they did this for generations to God's people. And so the idea of them having any sort of get-alongness with the Samaritans is utterly rejected by the first century. This starts a deep hatred with God's people because they recognize that how much they hate God's people. But here's the thing. Jesus shows up. He meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And he starts to build bridges, even with enemies of God that do all of these tactics, clearly acting in the spirit of the adversary. Jesus says there's actually a way to those people's hearts. They're humans that I made too, and I want them coming into my kingdom. And he challenges us to do the same thing. If there's any group of people on this earth that you think are beyond saving, you're wrong. From Jesus's perspective, these people are all souls that he's called to come into his kingdom. And that becomes a, a part of the narrative that Jesus will come and correct with his people. Verse 17, the king Artaxerxes sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria and to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. I'm, we're good. We got good terms. Artaxerxes sees the history as it's framed by his adversaries. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command, and a search has been made. And it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in, this, in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem, who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, both David and Solomon, beyond the Jordan River, 
It's interesting how that seems to be getting shifted. The tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. So until further notice, all construction needs to stop by the command of the king. No mention of the wilderness times, no mention of the kings that didn't rebel, um, no mention of the fact that kings also rebelled against Jew versus Jew, like Absalom rebelled against David. No mention of the fact that sometimes Jews fought each other. No mention of Jeroboam and Rehoboam splitting the kingdom. Like, they have not always been a powerhouse as a nation. Resisting conquest, yeah, that's not something to blame people for. Every emperor, the, every empire that's been conquered resists the conquest. So you see this record of a large Solomon reign, but seemingly they're talking about different rivers. Um, no record of consulting with the Jewish people, but this puts blinders on them. He only gets one side of the story. If you talk to the Jewish people, they would say, we're following the command of Cyrus. We're doing what he told us to do. And a lot of the Jews are still back in Babylon, right? But they've come under persecution. We know that from Esther. Were the, were the Jewish people sinful people? Actually, the truth is yes, they were. If you look at any of our histories and you say, well, look at that. This is what the accuser does. Look at who you used to be. And if we look back in your history, have you ever sinned against the Lord God Almighty? Have you ever done anything wrong? Have you ever been prideful or arrogant before your God? And for almost everybody, actually, let's just go with everybody. The answer is, yeah, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. You look into our history, none of us have a good history. That's not the point. The point is, what are they doing right now, which is building a house of worship to God? Take heed now, verse 22, that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they did a little dance. No, they, they went up in haste to Jerusalem. They're excited. They got their law. They got their edict. And they run to Jerusalem. They make haste. Went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms they made them cease. This is anti-Semitism. There's no reason to stop these people. Remember Cyrus sent multiple groups of people when we read through the Cyrus scroll, the Cyrus cylinder? He sent multiple groups of people to go back and rebuild these ancient temples to their gods and relocated them. There's no record whatsoever of any other group being stopped other than the Jews. And the threat of more damage happening implies that there has been damage. Who have they damaged? There's no record that the Jews have done anything to anybody. Yet you have this attack, and they come in by force of arms. Not only are they excited to stop the Jews, they come in and attack with force of arms. This results, we're going to know from Nehemiah, in a 15-year pause in the construction of God's house. They get their command. They move quickly to stop the construction. Verse 24, thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it gets stopped. End of chapter. They succeed with all of their adversarialness. They actually stop God's work for a season. Here's the good news. They don't stop God's work forever. Where they can harass and harangue and try to deflate and take away hope, the only thing that really stops God's people is if God's people quit. But the persistence of God's people can handle a 15-year wait and, and we can be told to wait by our Lord and we'll do it. And they 
comply with the government to the degree that they can. Here's the other thing that I think is hopeful. There's nothing that says that the altar gets stopped in use. And this is an important chapter, this one and the last one, because they built the altar first, and as they tried to build the house of God, morning and evening, remember that morning and evening sacrifices, monthly sacrifices, feasts and festivals, everything according to Leviticus is happening. They don't need the big building. They've got the altar. They don't need a place for the ark because they don't have an ark. They don't have the lampstand. They don't necessarily have the table for the showbread. They don't have all these wonderful symbols of God's covenant with his people, but they do have the altar. So there's nothing here that says that they stopped anything. The work on the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, but it doesn't say that the worship of God ceased. So for 15 years, they're doing morning and evening sacrifices. They're keeping the feasts and festivals. I think this is a really interesting concept. Jesus reinforces this. Those that are faithful in a little, God will bless with more. And for 15 years, I think God, all this works about. So God's people are like, are you here to build a building or are you here to worship me? Are you here to come before me? And they get this season where they don't even have their own government or their own land in Babylon for 70 years. And then they come back and they're all juiced up to get started. And I wonder if God is waiting for those people that were weeping, those old people, 70 plus, 15 years, a lot of them would be gone. Remember what God did in the wilderness? Put him in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation that doubted the entrance to the promised land was gone. And you wonder if this 15-year pause is a conditioning thing for God's people. God uses evil for good. And maybe it's okay for God's people to not put their faith in the building, but to continue to faithfully practice what God's told them to practice. It's no different for us today. We carry on doing what Jesus told us to do 2,000 years later because we're faithfully doing it until the day we die. And we don't need necessarily great ornaments and structures and you know, Jesus statues on a hill like in Brazil. Like, we don't need those things. What we need is the altar of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he gave. That's all we need to do. What we need to do as God's people. Everything else is icing on the cake. So the, the altar is still working, and we'll pick up with the rest of God's work next week as we go through Ezra. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what we can glean from it. We thank you for the perfection of it, the symmetry of it. Lord, we can come and read what you have to say to humanity. And we can do that with the freedom that we have and enjoy in this country. And we just thank you so much that we have that. We thank you for new friends and old friends that are here tonight. We just pray a blessing on their spirits. May they leave tonight just refreshed, renewed, with hope in your kingdom, understanding of the world that we're in. Uh, and clarity about the mission and the work that we have to do. Um, Lord, bless the conversation we're going to have and the time we pray tonight. Um, Lord, we come before you and ask for things in prayer because you told us to. It's part of the business you gave us. Uh, So we do that. And we thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice, uh, that we don't have to kill animals on an altar anymore. We have to simply understand that Jesus' sacrifice is eternal, that once and for all that was given. Uh, Lord, we wake up every morning and every evening and we thank you for the gift that you've given us on the altar. Um, Lord, that you were sacrificed for our sins once and for all. Um, Lord, that you are a perfect and a good king, uh, that you are eternal in nature and that gift you gave, Lord, is an eternal gift for all of us. So we thank you for those things. We thank you for this group of people, this sweet fellowship that we get to enjoy. We thank you for that blessing. What a gift. Uh, Lord, help us to be your servants with no apologies, no hesitation, uh, that we can serve you boldly and with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.